This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, gentrification is shrinking Black populations in cities across the country. We'll speak with the black trans anarchist organizer who says poor folks need to stop gentrification in its tracks by taking over every vacant building. And despite all the high hopes among black voters, President Joe Biden is already deporting huge numbers of black immigrants. But first, David Stovall is a professor of African-American studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago and an organizer with the People's Education Movement. Dr. Stovall is deeply involved in the fight to slow down and reverse the ongoing black exodus from Chicago. He's author of an article titled, Engineered Conflict, School Closings, Public Housing, Law Enforcement, and the Future of Black Life. Dr. Stovall explained why he thinks the conflicts affecting blacks in the cities are engineered. Actually presented some of the work to a group of graduate students just to get their feedback. And it just happened to be a student who was an engineer. She had a background in engineering. And she said, you know, one of the things in engineering is the elimination of human error. So when she said that, I really resonated with me because this idea around, if you think about cities, if you think about what has happened to black folks in cities in terms of things like restrictive covenants where people could not buy or live outside of restricted areas in terms of heavy residential segregation, in terms of onslaughts from local law enforcement. This thing, it stuck into my head around, well, in the life of cities, who is considered the error? And now, if the goal of any kind of engineering is to eliminate that error, then what does it mean for Black folks in cities when we think about things like education, healthcare, employment, and relationships to law enforcement. So for me, that concept is engineering or the elimination of human error for a more usable or perfect function really stuck out to me. And that's why I use that term engineer conflict because black folks are not often put in the equation in functioning cities. They're always positioned as the problem. If we're talking about these declines in the quality of black life and these various crises which combine to drive black folks out of places like Chicago as being engineered, then the crises that face urban blacks in places like Chicago are only crises for the affected populations but they are success stories for those who are engineering the crisis. Yeah, and to your point, it's not just that they are, it's a, there's this crisis for the, for the affected, but it's a temporary crisis for the powerful, right? So this, I think it's important to put that in, in conversation with each other, right? So where it is a crisis for Black folks to be to exist under these conditions, especially poor black folks who exist under these conditions. It's a temporary crisis for the folks in power who have always tried to shift 
the relationship with black folks who are experiencing poverty, isolation, and other forms of marginalization. So in Chicago, what we have is a city that has had a long-term temporary crisis that it is always trying to deal with, right? So now when we see what's happening in terms of homicides, we get a lot of rhetoric around the problem resting within black folks without paying attention to the structural factors that deeply impact homicides. Well, let's talk about these factors one by one. School closings, for example. Chicago has had more public school closings uh, per capita, I believe, than any other major city in the United States. How has that contributed to the crises in Black life? So we think about school closings, and my colleague Eve Ewing writes about this, I think, beautifully. She talks about schools as the centers of community. And when those places are closed, there's a lot of disruption that happens. And when that disruption happens, then the populations are, of Black youth are moved into other spaces. And what a national audience may not hear a lot, but what happens here in Chicago is because we are in a hyper-segregated city, it's not just all Black folks, all Latinx folks, all Asian folks, all white folks living in certain areas, but there's often segregation within neighborhoods. So because of regional segregation, Black folks who may live in a particular geographic area may not have relationships with other folks. Now, people wrongly equate that with gang territories, and that's not necessarily true. It's literally around people not being in contact with other folks. There may be some gang affiliations, but that's not the overarching factor. So now if we think about that in relationship to closing those schools and shifting that population of young folks into another school, then what happens? Right? I always pose this to my students. I say, well, look, if you got closed, if your school got closed and you got sent to the rival school, what happens on the first day, right? A ton of fights. So now if we think about 2013, what does that mean to do that 50 times over, right? So now we're not just disrupting any processes that could actually impact black life positively if we think about school experiences and education, but now we're, we're removing that and replacing a conflict in it in terms of folks not being in community with each other, so tensions arise. So that, to me, really becomes important when you start to think about how that conflict or education in particularly, or the removal of educational resources has affected Black folks writ large here in Chicago. Destruction of public housing. Uh, that's been happening all across the country uh, with the collaboration of many, if not most, Black elected officials in the uh, affected cities. But Chicago had a veritable skyline of public housing, uh, which has now all but disappeared. Yeah, I mean, at one point, the Robert Taylor Homes in the State Street Corridor was the largest single public housing unit in the world. Right, so 28 buildings, 16 stories, 20, 20 units per floor. So, I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of people that lived 
essentially in 20, 20 blocks on one street and then with another public housing unit right next to a Stateway Gardens, then the Illinois Institute of Technology having some type of a geographic breakup and then right next to the Illinois Institute of Technology with Dearborn Homes and then next to Dearborn Homes were the Ickes Homes and then across the street from the Ickes Homes were the Hilliard Homes. So if you talk about the only, the only buildings left of all of those that I've mentioned are the Dearborn Homes and the Hilliard Homes. So now if you think about all of those people, I mean tens of thousands of people were dispersed in a 10-year period. So now the question becomes not just where did they go, but what were the living conditions to the, in the places that they actually were displaced to? And what we see is that for many, those living conditions did not improve. So this is a larger, and this is a larger conundrum when we think about the destruction of public housing and now the shift to mixed income housing where a lot of folks who were at the bottom of the wealth spectrum really don't have access to. And there are a number of provisions that disallow them for having access to those spaces, like being lease compliant, working a certain amount of hours in the week, criminal records, or uh, any histories of drug abuse, right? So all of those factors can disqualify you from living in those mixed income spaces. So what we're seeing is those on the poorest end of the spectrum, black folks on the poorest end of the spectrum, really don't have access to this new housing or shifting housing stock, which is a, a serious problem to the point where many folks have left the city. The third aspect of these conflicts is law enforcement. But of course, law enforcement becomes deeply involved in all of the conflicts. And law enforcement itself is clearly part of the gentrification process, creating a hostile environment for Black families. Yep, and this really becomes important when we talk about law enforcement because when we talk about an engineered conflict, it's important to note that law enforcement is always operating in service to power. And in the case of Chicago, it's the mayor's office. So if there are problems with black folks, then the mayor would move to have police move on that problem. And that came in these unwarranted arrests, other forms of brutality that would include cases of rendition where young people would be taken in police cars and then dropped off in rival neighborhoods with the hope that they would be harmed in trying to get back home or not know their way back home. It would come in the form of drug arrests. It would come in this idea of really using law enforcement as the conduit for containment. And I think that's really important because as cities try to reinvent themselves, try to amass all these, form, these forms of global capital, one of the things that becomes important is the way to curtail crime. And the way that the city of Chicago moved was that they thought the best way would be to contain it into a point where folks who were actually had some proximity to the criminal behavior would inflict that on each other. So I always tell a story about a conversation that I had with a retired police officer. 
And he told me, he said, look, this is what you need to understand. He said, I'm going to tell you how to make a killer. And when he said it, I kind of looked at him strange, but he said, look, here's what you do. You don't have a place for them to live. You don't have a viable place for them to go to school. You don't have a viable place for them to work. You flood their community with a ton of weapons, and then you hire me to contain them. And when he said that, I was like, that's exactly it. And when we look at the poorest black communities across the country and then here in Chicago, we see all of those things present. And the rationale and blame is always placed on the people who have been inflicted with this type of suffering. And now when we start to see it, and when cops don't have an understanding of this structurally or when they're out in the street, then it becomes more viable, more available, or more excused to act in ways towards black people with violence. So when you think about cities like Chicago and nationally, I think you've done stuff on the show, you know, talking about the shooting of a young man named Laquan McDonald, who was shot 16 times by an officer named Jason Van Dyke. And I think it's important nationally for folks to understand when Jason Van Dyke was sentenced, it was not that he shot Laquan McDonald too many times. I mean, that he shot Laquan McDonald 16 times. The rationale was that he shot Laquan McDonald too many times, right? So it wasn't his shooting, but it was literally that he shot him too many times, meaning excessive force. But in the laws and understanding of the ways in which people understand the, the roles and duties and responsibilities of police, he was still in his jurisdiction to shoot him, right? And I think that's really important to put into play when we talk about engineered conflict, because the expected behavior of law enforcement towards black people is one without discretion and with extreme prejudice, right? So this thing around really thinking about it in that way and law enforcement really being the conduit for containment and the rationale for that containment. You write of the disconnect between city policy and the day-to-day realities of Black life in the city. But if this disconnect is consistent over time, not just in Chicago, but in virtually all the U.S. cities, it's got to be a disconnect on purpose. Right. And this thing around not even so much the disconnect on purpose as much as it is cities want to function in ways where they can amass capital, right? Where they can amass capital to attract either more people to them or more business interests. And one of the ways is to, to attract more business interests is to say that those business interests have very little risk, right? To assure those business interests that there's very little risk. So one of the ways to do that is to move or to displace those people who you have deemed to be dangerous or potentially harmful into these spaces. So it is a function of cities, right? It's not, I think it's important to communicate to a national audience that we're not talking about necessarily the clandestine behavior of a bunch of white dudes around a boardroom, a table deciding on what they're gonna do. Where that happens 
the real thing is the function of cities is to move in this way. And we're seeing this across the country. So we see this in Houston. We see this in Los Angeles. We see this in New York City. We see this in Chicago. We see this in Detroit, right? All of those cities that I've mentioned have had significant losses of black populations, right? And the rationale has been those were the people who couldn't make it. So we had to, we had to create avenues for them to go elsewhere. And we know that that's pretty nefarious in terms of going elsewhere when we're really talking about displacement and containment. So what we're really looking at is the normal workings, and I use the term normal purposely, the normal workings of cities under capitalism. And what's on purpose is city administrations uh, striving to run these cities uh, in accordance with the most profitable modes of capitalist cities. Without question, and look no further than Chicago as one of the places who really kind of pioneered the idea of the public-private partnership because old man Daly, Richard J. Daly, actually secured these particular relationships because there weren't the coppers in the public sphere to actually do what he intended to do in terms of rebuilding the city and making up for the losses that he felt the city had experienced with white flight. So those public-private partnerships have a very unique relationship to Chicago, and we see them play themselves out to this day. Well, nothing can upset the machinations of organized capital and its servants in City Hall except an organized people. And you've been involved in trying to get an organized and educated population. Indeed, when we think about it in terms of ways of thinking about, you know, what is afforded to folks, but then what do people decide to do fugitively? And one of the things that I try to look at in this project is people who are engaging in things like what they refer to as a solidarity economy or mutual aid understandings that allow folks to see issues of housing, education, and employment as ways to now rebuild what has been removed from communities. So when we talk about people who are thinking about, well, what does it mean to collectivize folks who work in informal economies, right, who are not engaging in any type of nefarious activity, but this might be the person who has a stand where they're selling incense, soap, oils, and now how do they collectivize their work or somebody who has a food stand that's actually feeding people in the community? How do you begin to collectivize that work? How do we begin to think about housing in terms of land trusts and co-ops that make sure that those who have historically been without now have a way to engage themselves with housing that is not only affordable, but well-maintained and can be passed down generationally, right? So really thinking about the ways in which this, these solidarity economies start to operate and even thinking about people who have taken healthcare in a different direction with things like teaching folks in community spaces on how to treat gunshot injuries if the ambulance does not come, 
right? So really kind of thinking about our work fugitively, but at the same time, thinking about it in ways that are sustainable and can be passed down. But at this stage in the struggle to remain and thrive in Chicago, Black folks are still losing, the population still dropping. Yes, and this is something that really becomes important because since 2000, the Black population has not seen an uptick, right? So we, there's literally been 21 years of depopulation. So now when people are talking about making sure that there is affordable housing and living wage employment, these are critical elements in making sure that Black folks have a place to stay here in Chicago and in many efforts across the country. We're seeing stuff in Baltimore, seeing uh, different imaginations in Los Angeles and in New York City, but really thinking about the ways in which folks can not only remain in their communities, but actually create thriving ones. That was Dr. David Stovall speaking from Chicago. No big city has seen more gentrification and black pushout than San Francisco. Nevertheless, black trans anarchist organizer Gemma DeCristo is still there in the city by the bay. DeCristo is in full agreement with the recent Truth Out article on the mostly white and affluent folks that call themselves Yimbis. These Yimbis say yes to the proliferation of high-cost housing in their own backyards and throughout the city. But Gemma DeCristo says what the rich gentrifiers are actually saying when they call themselves Yimbis is yes to white supremacy in my backyard. Exactly. That's a really good way to put it. Even the language of the name, right? Yes, in my, the my part of it is very colonial and very like possessive. And, you know, in, in the general vein of broader kind of neoliberal Reaganomics from which they draw or which they draw upon, the one of sort of the central edicts of their movement and one of their fundamental practices is to privatize public resources. We really see this as a central tactic, right? And in San Francisco in particular, I mean, you see this in other cities like New York, certainly LA, you know, Chicago has a very, especially downtown Chicago, you see a lot of similar kinds of privatization projects. Um, you know, their movement is very focused around privatizing what are generally public, public lands or things that have, you know, some sort of like public access tied to them. So like the, the my in Yimby is totally a, you know, it is totally a, the person that is the, the subject of it is a wealthy white, mostly white. I mean, you do see like affluent, you know, like Asian, East Asian, South, South Asian tech workers, because a lot of the movement is, and we can talk about that in a moment, a lot of the movement really completely emerges out of the collusion of the real estate industry with, of course, as we are unfortunately cursed within the Bay Area, the emergence of the tech tech industry or the tech sector, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, one of the sort of central beliefs of their movement is to their language of innovation, which is completely poached from tech, is much in the model of something like Uber or other things to privatize things that are generally have some kind of public, public access or public, if you will, I guess, ownership, maybe not the best word for certain public things. But so, yeah, it's absolutely a white supremacist project, because as we, you know, the history of property in, in, in this country, their general sort of belief is in a trickle-down logic. So it is to treat more and more of the 
land, if you will, in San Francisco as a business opportunity and a market and to, and to like liberate it in true neoliberal fashion for speculation on the market, right? So to take it out of public access or public protections when we think of things like public housing that are actively trying to demolish in San Francisco, that my is created through this process. So this process of invasion, gentrification, infiltration of public offices that have the power to basically privatize public housing, public resources, like uh, one thing they're trying to do now is convert a bus depot for the local muni, we call it public bus system. They're trying to build what would be largely private, but certainly largely market rate housing on top of the public bus depot, which would shift the ownership or the stewardship of the land the bus depot is on, which is now public, into private hands and open it up for probably endless private speculation. Like things really never move the other way around, right? It's very hard to get private resources into public hands, for example. Yes, they advocate for deregulation and just growing housing all over the place under the premise that uh, some of that housing is going to trickle down to the poor. And in fact, in the Truth Out article, I saw some of these Yimby people talking about, well, the poor will get this housing 30 years from now when they'll surely need it, after it's worn out, I suppose, uh, by several generations of gentrifiers. Right. And I mean, as we know, and we see this even in economists, right, in, in some kind of fashion, if someone were invested in being that, would point out that this never really happens, right? There is no moment in the um, speculation on housing where expensive apartments all of a sudden become cheap. What we see, you know, even per the, the logic of inflation, is, is cheaper places becoming expensive. That's actually how gentrification works. That's how capitalism works. There is no example in cities, the history of cities, where wealthy luxury apartments in particular all of a sudden become cheap. So we know that one, the problem with that, right, even allowing them to build anything is that it should start out free or cheap. If it doesn't start out free or cheap, the housing, extremely cheap, you know, low income, no income uh, for like unhoused folks, which is a big population um, in San Francisco as it is in other cities. If it doesn't start out that cheap or that accessible, we should say, then it never will be. They've already gentrified San Francisco to the point that it's only 5% Black. And they ran so many Blacks out of San Francisco into Oakland, and now Oakland has become hyper-gentrified. Exactly. One of the things that's been really stark is that over the years, if you're someone who's been organizing in the Bay, you've seen this really unsuccessful attempt for UMBs, for the most part, to present. You know, I mean, I think one of the reasons they targeted the Bay Area is that there is a broad history of kind of like neoliberal nonprofit politics, right, where the idea, you know, like people's identities have often been used to kind of Trojan horse in projects that actually target the community they claim to be advocating for. And one of the ways they try to like create these kind of cultural districts, if you will, which is not formally what the Fillmore is, um, but, you know, the Fillmore famously a historically Black neighborhood and right near the Western Edition, another historically Black neighborhood. One of the things they've tried to do, right, is to, and you see this with the mission in San Francisco as well. You see this, I mean, some of the history of the Castro is like this too. Uh, Soma as well is, is kind of make a, the neighborhood an homage to the group 
that is actually displacing. So that is a longer project in the Bay, I think, in particular, and you see this in other cities as well. What is almost funny in a way about Yimbis is that they haven't really even tried to do that with Black people or Blackness. They've generally had a very, I would say, like, openly racist, anti-Black focus to their politics. Like, there are probably a couple very visible and kind of uh, tenuous Black tokens in their movements, but on the whole, it's not really something that, it's, it's an incredibly white movement. And so, you know, I think one of the things that's kept San Francisco's populate, kept any Black people in San Francisco, I'd actually say, has been things like public housing, right, that was built in the 40s, and that really hasn't been expanded since the 1960s, like a lot of cities in the U.S., and maybe New York is an exception, but the overall amount of public housing that cities have built has decreased, right, um, relative to population growth. And, and accessibility and need. And in San Francisco, all the housing projects that are mostly Black, especially places like Sunnydale, especially places like Potrero Hill, have actually been one of the ways that you see Black people still able to stay in San Francisco. What YIMBYs have just recently done, and this is a really typical something that people should and must organize around in San Francisco, they have actually started targeting public housing and arguing to turn low-income housing that is mostly Black into quote-unquote mixed-income housing. And one of the logics of this, right, is a very racist kind of urban policy belief that diversity is uniformly good. Now, that might be good if we go back to the civil rights movement and think about Black people being able to move into, like, predominantly white neighborhoods that have access to food and healthcare and schools and all that. But the problem with that is that now they're using it to basically remove Black populations because they look at the Potrero Hill projects and say, oh, that housing is not diverse. It is all poor or low-income Black people. So we need to diversify it, which again goes to the colonization aspect of this group. And we need to move in mixed income, which is going to be wealthy white people who call the police all the time. So, and that is another way that could bring up another important aspect of this, right? If we think about what happened over the summer, one of the really disastrous, one of the really kind of talked about, but also overlooked parts of the way the Black population has been, you know, uh, disappeared and forced, uh, forced out of San Francisco and Oakland is the close overlap between real estate and policing, right? So we see as neighborhoods become wealthier, police presence usually enters these neighborhoods in the first place and makes them, quote unquote, safer for capital for white people. And then we also see, of course, an escalation in, in things like calling the police and street sweeps that they do here. So unquestionably, there's been like a, an all-out assault or an all-fronts assault, if you will, from Yimbis on Black communities in the Bay. And that is one of the most like violent and destructive parts of their movement has been, like you said, to dramatically decrease the amount of Black people and in kind of a, the way that stuff has been done since the 70s, this kind of dog whistle way, right? So that neighborhood is not diverse rather than saying there's too many Black people in that neighborhood or there's too much crime in that neighborhood was how people would have talked about it in the 70s or 80s. Their language is even more abstracted. And that's why it's so much more violent and so much more brutal than something that is overtly racist that says, I don't want Black people living there. They might say, oh, this neighborhood is not diverse enough in terms of class. We want mixed income, which was always a bad idea when it's in the context of a poor neighborhood. If this YIMBY is a movement, then it certainly is 
the richest movement ever seen in the United States, uh, made up of tech-rich young white men subsidized by real estate companies. Uh, they got some nerve calling it a movement, but you would like to see uh, real movements, real people's movements, mm -hmm. real poor and lower income and black folks movements like Moms for Housing advocating. Right. One of the ways Yimbis were able to kind of infiltrate the Bay Area was by calling themselves a movement, right? It's a little bit like, I think, what you see with things like the Tea Party, if you remember that, like 10 years ago, is you see them adopting the language of, of grassroots, or you see them adopting the language of the oppressed, or adopting the language of the dispossessed, right? And they're all either formerly tech workers, or actually current tech workers, all making six-figure salaries. They're all real estate, or real estate you know, uh, employees, uh, realtors, have close ties to realty and tech, real estate and tech. They all have all these resources, but kind of an old convention of white supremacy, right? We can go back to the 19th century, at least for this, <laughs> the abolition of slavery, but is to claim we are the ones who are oppressed. Therefore, we need a movement to fight for our freedom, right? And that's one of the classic white supremacist techniques of Yimbis. Like you said, they are funded by real estate and tech, two of the most wealthy industries in the United States, if not the world. Now, you know, like to call themselves a movement, and they actually have more established people in political positions, like they have people that are officially Yimbis that are in power. So it's also ridiculous to call it a movement, right? Again, it's very similar to the people who stormed the Capitol, who were like, well, we're part of a movement and we're oppressed, identical to with Yimbis. So that's that part. What you're saying, I want to focus on the second part of what you said, because I don't want that to get lost when people, when I, for everything I've said, I think people might go, oh, this is kind of hopeless. There's this big albatross. That like, how are we ever going to, you know, throw this behemoth of, a, of an oppressive force that is Yimbyism off our back? It's not the only example of it, but I think it was a really prominent example was the Moms for Housing, which was a group of Black mothers in Oakland, most of whom I think had been um, evicted or experienced housing insecurity, who took over a vacant, another one of these Yimby projects, Yimby produced vacant homes in a mostly Black neighborhood in Oakland, or still Black, depending on how you look at it, I guess. And they basically squatted the house. And I think this is a really big question or moment for this. And I think the summer hopefully brought this on as well as a, hopefully another summer, if, if not the rest of the year brings this on, is longer term strategies, longer term abolitionist strategies, right, from removing police from our communities, from removing real estate speculation from our communities that invites police or requires police in order to exist, is to produce a Black anarchist squatters movement of folks. And I think in some ways it's getting to that point too. Like I think one of the sort of central aspects of the Moms for Housing, uh, one of their claims was, look, we don't have, many of us do not have a choice at this point. We must take housing that is just sitting there. It's either living on the street in cold and danger, uh, exposed to police harassment, constant police harassment, city harassment, and unsafe conditions, I think, especially for Black women, especially for Black queer and trans people. This is a moment where we should as part of a kind of abolitionist moment, as part of sort of an abolitionist dream, if you will, what the world looks like when we do abolish police, we should seize all this vacant housing that is just sitting there for the rich that is in many cases not even been bought by them and is still in the hands of private developers and equity firms. So I thought that was a really beautiful and powerful move that the Moms for Housing and a few other smaller groups, I think there was a similar gesture made in Minneapolis in the summer too, to really squat these houses. This has been a long tactic, even go back to the 60s for like when the law is not, and the law never will, 
do the right thing in these cases. I think it's up to the people, especially Black people, especially Black and Brown people, undocumented folks, trans folks, queer folks, disabled folks, to take this housing, you know, to make it accessible for us and our communities, to make it safe. And I think it's a really promising thing because the last thing I'll add is that I think one of the issues we've experienced with the centralization of Black radical movements, uh, particularly in, in the hands of a select few corporate shills or sellouts, I'll say, <laughs> to speak of something very contemporary um, with the Black Lives Matter founders and people like that, is that a more decentralized movement could be a really successful model for people across cities to kind of produce more radical forms of collectivity and living that despeculate and remove, you know, housing from the private sector. So I, I would love to see more things like Moms for Housing take effect across the United States, if not across the world. You know, we, I mean, there's other places like Berlin has a lot of squatter movements. I think a Black squatters movement would be a really powerful project, especially for those that really are urgently in need of housing, right? Centralizing our needs in politics rather than the needs of capital, I think would be a really good step for the next Black organizing generation, next sort of Black abolitionist project. That was Gemma DeCristo speaking from San Francisco. Sian Gurmu is legal director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, or BAGI, which advocates for the rights of Black immigrants to the United States. BAGI is part of the Black Immigration Network. Sian Gurmu says the new Biden administration immediately showed its hostility to Black immigrants. Absolutely. I think that Baji and like-minded um, progressive immigrant rights abolitionist organizations have really been fighting to educate and advocate on behalf of immigrant communities despite who is in office. Um, so whether we have a Republican at the helm of our administration or a Democrat, I think the bars and the challenges against Black immigrants uh, remain the same by and large, including under this administration, under the Biden administration, where we have seen over a thousand Black immigrants deported in just this short amount of time. So our, our call and our mission remains consistent. So you're saying that a thousand black immigrants have been deported since Joe Biden took office? That is correct. And what kind of representations have you made to the administration in light of that surprising speed of expulsion? So Baji and our partner organizations have uh, been in communication with this administration even before they took office. And we have expressed uh, the needs of Black immigrants and the importance of removing criminal bars that have made it difficult for Black immigrant communities to remain in the United States. Despite that advocacy and the efforts that we've made to provide reporting and information about our communities that are at greatest risk, we've continued to see them targeted um, by past and the current administration, and they're really being removed in very large numbers, especially the Haitian community. And there is a sort of deafening silence throughout the immigrant rights community about this harm. I mean, we were 
alarmed and sort of clamoring to find justice for immigrant youth when they were being separated from their families. Um, the same thing was happening when Central um, and South American immigrants were being told to remain in Mexico and were unable to enter the United States to, to seek asylum and other forms of immigration relief. However, that same level of alarm uh, and concern seems to be missing at this critical time where we see Black immigrants being deported in very large numbers under an administration that claims to be in line with the sort of racial justice issues that we have all been talking about as a nation for many months now. Your organization, Baji, emphasizes the importance of collaborating with African-American organizations, but you describe yourself as an abolitionist organization, and that puts you on the radical arena of Black American politics. How has that affected your interaction with more mainstream, old-line Black organizations and with Black elected officials? I think that there has been a shift in language um, that has been, I think, perceptible to sort of anyone following Black politics or just politics throughout the nation. And I think some terms that were considered taboo or too far left are starting just now beginning to be embraced. And I think we're starting to have really critical conversations about what abolition actually means and what it means in the context of criminal justice, what it means in the context of immigrant rights, um, and then also what it means in an international sphere. We're starting to recognize the ways in which, like, the combination of organized violence and the abandonment of Black communities has just produced so much vulnerability for us as a community. And so regardless of, I guess, the language that's used in our respective mission statements, I think we're beginning to have really important conversations that we have avoided in the past. And one of those is, what does it mean to abolish certain institutions like the police or like immigration and customs enforcement? Um, And starting to develop really creative solutions for what we could do in place of these really harmful institutions. What are the most important changes that need to be made in immigration law and in immigration law practice? Sure. I think an organization, Baji, focuses on the criminalization of Black immigrants. This country has a long history of turning Black people into criminals through um, our legal system, which is rooted in post-slavery America, as you know. And so we're looking to all of these new acts and bills that are coming out, and they're being celebrated as these really progressive, comprehensive ideas about how to reform immigration. And for us, that's just not the case, because they include so many criminal bars that exclude our communities from being able to take part in this sort of legalization process that's happening for a lot of undocumented immigrants, that's just simply not something that we can support. 
in that same breath, um, we do organize for the abolition of ICE and for the abolition of immigration detention facilities. We find it very harmful and counterproductive to detain and oftentimes abuse, whether it's psychologically, um, physically, verbally, etc., um, immigrants who are fleeing countries that have been underdeveloped by this nation and folks who have experienced extreme trauma and often have really serious mental health issues as a result of the trauma they experienced in their home countries, when those folks are coming to the United States to seek refuge, the last place we should be putting them into is immigration jails and detention facilities. It just simply does not make sense. Baji talks about the need for cultural shifts in both Black immigrant communities and African-American communities in the United States. What do you mean cultural shifts? By cultural shifts, we're referring to eliminating the division that often exists between Black immigrant communities and African-American communities here in the U.S. Um, Our organization works really hard to bridge that divide where it does exist and then strengthen our community ties where we've already built those bonds and are really working in tandem with one another. Like I mentioned before, we work at the intersection of racial justice and immigration. And oftentimes, the policy changes that we're advocating for affect all Black folks and not just Black immigrant communities. So when we talk about the history of criminalizing Black people in this country, we're thinking beyond just immigration detention facilities, but really thinking about the ways in which our youth are criminalized in schools, our adults are criminalized um, in our larger communities, and how these larger systems impact all Black people. Yes, historically, waves of Black immigrants from especially the Caribbean, but more recently from Africa, uh, the second generations of these immigrants have virtually integrated into Black America, become African Americans. Right, yes. Um, So I uh, was born in Ethiopia, Um, My family came to the United States as asylum seekers um, during the Derg regime in Ethiopia, um, which killed many, many organizers and college students advocating for democracy at that time. Um, And I came to the United States at a fairly young age. And I, I guess, would be an example of one of those individuals that's really been integrated into this country. And I do consider myself you know, an American. Um, And so there's so many of us that are either, you know, first generation, second generation immigrants, et cetera, who really consider ourselves Americans and we're interested in what is best for this country as a collective. And so when we think about Black folks, that that term is just so inclusive of so many people, folks who just landed here yesterday, people that have been here for generations, et cetera. And so when we think about what's best for our Black communities, we try to be really expansive in our thought and really include as many people as possible. And one would hope that the immigrant community first generation and descendants would bring a more internationalist approach to politics. Certainly. And I think that's where 
our understandings of migration and what is at the core of abolitionist movements really comes together. And we try to use our experiences as Black immigrants from sub-Saharan countries that also tortured and wrongly imprisoned people to inform some of our work here in U.S. struggles that really are advocating to end the same sort of human rights abuses that exist here. And so, like I said before, there's really this international dimension to the core of abolitionist movements, and we try to draw from our experiences all over the globe to really inform the way that we work with our communities here in the United States. All right, we've been through four years of Donald Trump and his absolute and often stated hostility to immigrants of almost all kinds, but especially those from Black countries. And so there were high expectations of what a democratic regime might mean. Have these expectations been met? So these expectations have definitely not been met. There has been a slew of like new legislation that has been proposed under this current administration, including even the really celebrated Dream and Promise Act, which is legislation that would provide a pathway to citizenship, over 3 million DACA holders and other eligible immigrant youth and TPS holders. However, we find ourselves in, in an awkward space because this bill and many others like it, continue to rely on the criminal legal system and immigrant contact with that system to exclude so many of our adults and youth from gaining relief, despite the fact that this system disproportionately targets Black communities and other communities of color. So Baji is really advocating strongly that eligibility for immigration relief should not be in any way linked with someone's contact with the criminal legal system. And so we're really pushing for a more inclusive um, form of immigration legislation moving forward that doesn't leave our people behind um, and really intentionally block Black folks from gaining those benefits as well. Well, here we have an immigration system that defends itself politically by constantly talking about its focus on expelling people with criminal backgrounds or criminal intentions. So this uh, criminal aspect of the U.S. immigration system seems to be at its political core. That is correct. Um, It is at its political core, and I think it's really been a tenet of immigration policies that there are undesirable populations that we are going to make an effort to exclude um, and push out. And I don't think that anyone, even outside of the immigration realm, would be surprised by that. I think the criminalization of Black folks in the U.S. has been utilized as a really important political tool throughout the years, Um, whether we're talking about Jim Crow, the war on drugs, broken windows policing. All of this has been used to maintain a system of white supremacy, even though racism isn't always explicitly acknowledged uh, in the creation and enforcement of these laws. This has 
sort of always been the context that we've lived in, but that doesn't make it right, um, and that doesn't make it something um, that we should continue to ignore. So even if it's only Black-led immigrant rights organizations that are really rejecting these new policies and proposals for legislation, we have to continue to raise our voices against this because it's just simply unacceptable to continue to see our communities marginalized and kicked out of this country. Yes, the U.S. powers that be would like to expel native-born blacks, but they can't. And the next best thing from their standpoint is mass black incarceration. Yes, and we see that in in really uh, every realm. So the mass incarceration of uh, black folks who are citizens in this country, as well as non-citizens in this country, um, we see the numbers of Black folks in immigration detention facilities rising year by year. Um, right now, the number of folks in deportation facilities is really at its lowest, and Black folks as well. Um, but that's for two reasons. Um, COVID and the mass deportation of Black folks in this time. Um, so even when those numbers are sort of lower, that's not actually a moment for celebration. That's because we're very sort of discreetly being tossed out of this country um, and folks are not ha talking about it, but it's happening and it's happening very rapidly. So the numbers are down right now, but when and if there is a recovery from COVID, if nothing is done institutionally to change things, then we can expect an increase in uh, detention centers for Black immigrants in particular. Yes, we can. Um, our southern border has been closed to most immigrants and certainly Black immigrants since the rise of COVID, which was about this time last year was when our border closed. And since that time, there has been a growing number of Black migrants sort of trapped in Mexico and waiting for an opportunity to enter the United States to seek refuge. We have found that Mexico is a very racist and violent um, and turbulent place for Black migrants to be. Baji has done pretty extensive reporting on anti-Black racism in Mexico, um, and it's just simply not a place where our people can remain. So once the border does reopen, we are going to find that a lot of those Black folks, thousands of Black folks who have been trapped in Mexico will be held in detention facilities here and are at great risk of deportation um, if there are not enough attorneys to take on those cases, which by and large, there are not. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.